Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 289th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Felicia Henry. So I'm a PhD student in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware, and I am coming to you live from there. So for the next three Mondays in June, I'll be your guest host. Exactly one year ago, Scott invited me to be a guest on the podcast to discuss disaster research, race, emergency management, and vulnerable communities. And on that episode, I talked about the importance of expanding how we understood social vulnerability, how we understood um, concepts like the social construction of disasters. And as a guest host, I'd like to continue that discussion by inviting guests to talk about structural violence, incarceration, and environmental justice, really incorporating my own background as a scholar activist. One year after the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, calls for racial and economic justice are still resounding around the country. And it's my hope that these episodes, these next few episodes, will really amplify those calls. So today I am welcoming Dr. Dan Berger, an associate professor of comparative ethnic studies at the University of Washington, Bothell. He's the author or editor of several books, including Captive Nation, Black Prison Organizing and the Civil Rights Ever, which won the 2015 James Rawley Prize from the Organization of American Historians, and Rethinking the American Prison Movement, co-authored with Toussaint Lossier. His most recent book is Remaking Radicalism, a grassroots documentary reader of the United States, 1973 to 2001, co-edited with Emily Hobson. Dr. Berger curates the Washington Prison History Project, an online archive of prison policy and organizing in Washington state, and has contributed articles to The Appeal, Black Perspectives, Boston Review, and Truth Out, among elsewhere. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korean Time on YouTube. Just go to COVID Calls on the YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded on podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else that you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or COVID Calls, and you can keep up with me at underscore graced the number four this. So please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, June 14, 2021, there are 3,806,471 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. And the death toll in the United States is 599,928. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, we've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that reading now. And so this article is actually from the Marshall Project. At the start of the pandemic, the Marshall Project asked four incarcerated people to chronicle daily life with the coronavirus. This is the story of Bruce Bryant, incarcerated at Sing Sing Correctional Facility in New York, March 2020. My daily routine during the pandemic always starts off the same. I get up about 6 a.m. at the sound of an extremely loud bell and have to stand or sit up with the light on for the count. Then I turn on the news. Breakfast is between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m., but since there is no social distancing here, I stay in my cell and eat oatmeal. The call time is about 9.30, but I don't go to the yard either. We are literally piled on top of each other trying to get outside so we can get a phone. There are 22 phones in the yard, often fewer because some don't work. There are 88 men per gallery with eight galleries going outside at the same time. If you are not in one of the galleries, call first. The chances of you being able to call your family are slim to none. I'm able to get to a phone about every three weeks. At the start of the pandemic, the superintendent began hosting press conferences in the chapel with various leadership organizations, including the Inmate Liaison Committee. He begins by outlining his concerns and efforts to keep everyone safe and then asks the attendees if they have any questions. I have not attended those sessions, but I'm thoroughly debriefed by the brothers when they return. The meetings relieve some of the stress and anxiety within the prison. However, each time someone passes out or dies, it draws everyone's attention back to the reality and heightens everyone's sense of vulnerability. Every single night, I hear men coughing for hours. There are countless men who have symptoms, loss of taste, smell, headaches, and chills. 
Some are afraid to be quarantined because it means that they'll go to solitary confinement. An incarcerated person must be extremely ill to be tested. It's amazing how scientists have the resources to test lions, tigers, and other felines, but incarcerated people don't hold the same value, so we can't get tested. Many of us have underlying issues like diabetes, asthma, and high blood pressure. In April, a guy named Ramon Escobar died. Several weeks before, he and I went to the clinic for a sick call. They kept him for a couple of days and then brought him back to his cell. A few days later, he went to the hospital, and 16 days later, he died while hooked up to a ventilator. The prison has tried to distance us. In the dining area, they now only allow four people at a table, and you don't have to wait for everyone to finish before you leave. They're disinfecting common areas, too. They're using bleach on the kiosks we use to send emails and on the telephones in the gym and on the yard. But what difference does that make when they bring people who are diagnosed with COVID back from the hospital just because they are feeling better? They aren't retested to see if they're still carrying the virus. And what difference does it make when the guards don't wear masks? The guards know we can't get visits, so the only way for us to contract the virus is through them. But many act as if we are the virus. I guess they are conditioned to view incarcerated people as subhuman. There has been no compassion for us. People whose family members have been hospitalized for COVID-19 don't get special access to the phones. When an incarcerated person has a civil proceeding, they conduct parts of it via video conference. But an incarcerated person can't connect with their dying mother via the same system. A friend in the cell next to me had to literally argue with social workers in the council unit for a phone call after they called to tell him that his mother was sick from COVID. We spent weeks writing letters to advocacy groups that might be able to help my friend Francisco to get a video visit with his mother. She has been hooked up to a ventilator for weeks. She may very well pass away and Francisco wants to see her one last time. Eventually, the prison agreed to let him have a video visit, but right after he found out, he got another call to say his mom died. When someone passes away, all that matters is who his friends are. We try to console each other by listening. I always tell my neighbor I'm praying for him. And sometimes I pray for all the guys dealing with sick loved ones on the outside. At the end of the day, people in prison only have each other. We often build social bonds, real bonds. We have friendships that matter. I try to be a light in a dark place. Prison is a cold environment. It's up to us to create our own heat. My guest today, Dr. Dan Berger. Dr. Berger, thank you so much for jumping on this call and saying yes to this conversation. I so appreciate it. Um, so I read your bio a little bit earlier, but if you have, you know, some time, let's talk about who you are, where you come from, what your work looks like and your background. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for that powerful opening, which I think does a really necessary and uh, an important job sort of setting the the urgency of the time period um as you said i i teach at the university of washington bothell i live in seattle um i've been here for about nine years <clears throat> before this i lived in uh in philadelphia um where i did my graduate work but also helped start an organization there called decarcerate pa um uh, which continues the um, both directly and and through kind of partner and other coalition groups continues to be involved in uh, in efforts to reduce the size and scope of the prison system um, and that's work that I feel very um, you know passionately about that that I think is is most um, is is incredibly urgent and and was before covid 19 uh, and I think really you know prison really constitutes what uh, a friend of mine, <clears throat> excuse me, the poet, Emily Abendroth, described as an example of bad intersectionality, right? It's, it's a way that we can see how all of these systems of oppression and violence uh, intersect, right? How they come together in terms of um, disenfranchisement and exploit, exploitation and oppression of, uh, of racialized, marginalized communities. Um, but also then, right, I think the movements against them need to be and, and often are examples of, of the kinds of transformative, you know, liberatory models of intersectionality that we need as well. Um, and so that's been work that I feel very inspired by and connected to intellectually, um, but also politically and personally. And so I'm, I try to, to support that. I try to sh sort of shine the light on that um, and try to sort of also uh, draw more attention to the kind of 
um, intellectual and political work of currently and formerly incarcerated people uh, historically as kinds of um, prognosticators of the of the carceral crisis and what, and what we now call mass incarceration. Um, and, and then, you know, particularly in this moment where so COVID has further exposed how brutal and devastating the U.S. prison regime is. Yeah. And thank you for that, because I think that you are bringing up what will ultimately be the theme of our conversation, right? So really talking about why is the COVID-19 pandemic significant for incarcerated folks? And what are we really seeing when we're seeing these kinds of what you describe as bad inter intersectionality? What are we seeing um, with the convergence of many systems? So let's take a step back for folks that may not necessarily be super aware of what's going on for incarcerated folks, um, folks that are under some sort of carceral control, whether jail, prison, detention center. What's significant about this moment, about the pandemic? Why does it matter for folks who are incarcerated? Yeah, so there are about 2.3 million people who are in, in jail, prisons, and detention centers throughout throughout the country. Um, and we can talk about the, the difference between those things, if, if that would be helpful. Um, but first and foremost, in none of those spaces is there sufficient room to social distance, right? So we saw this very early in the pandemic, um, and it's continued to be a problem throughout, even as uh, some, some carceral systems have figured out some forms of adaptation, um, but, but the, these are not institutions that are set up for social dis distancing. Um, cells are close together, but also there's lots of facilities that don't operate on cellular confinement, right? People are sleeping in dorms um, of, you know, 50, 75, you know, 100 people in a, in a dorm, just in bunk beds. Um, even where, where people are in cells, that doesn't mean that they are in cells alone. Um, people are double, triple, or quadruple celled. Um, so, so just the physical infrastructure itself is conducive to the spread of disease, uh, and there's nothing within those institutions that, that mitigates against the spread of that disease. And COVID brings that into particularly sharp relief because of how easily it is spread as an as a, uh, aerosolized um, virus. But we've seen this with other diseases, right? We, we've seen outbreaks of, uh, of tuberculosis, we've seen outbreaks of HIV AIDS, of, of, of other kinds of ailments that are um, accelerated through jails, prisons, and detention centers, right? They are the kind of ultimate super spreader. Um, so, so just the physical infrastructure itself, I think, is the first thing that I would call people's attention to. Um, but the second thing is, of course, that because the, these are institutions that are premised on punishment. The idea is that people who are are held within them, people who are captive within them, are somehow not deserving of the same kinds of protections and and resources that that those of us on the outside are sometimes held worthy of. Um, and so it was a major fight to provide. Um, PPE to incarcerated people for the first several months of the pandemic. Um, and, and even once the vaccines became available, there was a, a long-standing debate about whether incarcerated people are even entitled to, to the vaccine. Um, and this, this is you know, remarkably callous and, and brutal. It's also disgustingly short-sighted right because here are people who are who are contained so the virus didn't start with them <laughs> and the only way that people who are incarcerated or detained contracted covid-19 was from staff coming in and not realizing that they had it and yet then they come into these institutions that are sort of physically um, set up to be super spreaders and so you know whole units whole tiers get get uh, get infected remarkably quickly, um, which then they can pass on to other guards, right, or other staff who weren't infected who then go out to, into the community. Um, when we're talking about the jail context, these are people generally who are being held um, pre-trial, 
These are people who, uh, who have not, by and large, have not been convicted of anything um, or have been convicted of low-level offense and are serving a very short time period, right? That, that's the jail population. And whereas in prison, we tend to think of, of stasis, right? People are stuck there for long periods of time. In, when we're talking about jails, the, what we're really talking about uh, is churn, right? People are moving through the jail system rapidly in some cases, not uh, um, rapidly, maybe, maybe overstated in terms of what it's like to experience it, right? Mm -hmm. But it's to say that people aren't serving 20, 30, 300 years in jail the ways that they do, unfortunately, serve in prisons. And so that means that, that jails become, again, these sort of multiple um, multiple super spreaders, right? Because not only can, you know, staff bring in, bring in the infection uh, to, to incarcerated people that, that might then spread to other staff, but people in jail themselves might, might be released without, um, without knowing, you know, if, if they've contracted the virus. And so the whole apparatus physically, but also ideologically and conceptually is, is set up as this, you know, vast, wasteland of, of human disposability, right? These are people yeah. that have been written off, uh, including, you know, it, it needs to be said, first and foremost, by the people who whose job it is to to guard them, right? So that even as vaccine rates have uh, have accelerated, including for incarcerated people, right, that that's, states realize that they couldn't, um, from a public health standpoint, deny incarcerated people the vaccine, but but even now, police and guards are among the least likely professions to be vaccinated. So these are the fields of carceral control, right? The fields of of law enforcement remain, uh, you know, almost pro COVID at this point. <laughs> to see these sort of low levels of of, uh, of vaccination rates, when we you know when we know both how effective the vaccine is and how deadly uh, how deadly the pandemic is. Yeah, and I think that that was a really comprehensive answer because I think you you really brought into focus all of the different layers, right? This is a multi-layered, multifaceted issue. So it's not just about the spread of COVID, right? It's not just about folks who are incarcerated and are actually experiencing this confinement, but you're also talking about staff. You're talking about other folks who continue to perpetuate this kind of um, ideology and punishment, but also kind of talking about the impacts of communities, because I think so many times we think about uh, folks who are incarcerated and carceral facilities as being very removed. And in some ways they are, but they are very much embedded in actual communities in terms of their geographic locations, but then also embedded in their actual communities that they're from, right? And will return to for the most part, most people will go Perfect. home. Yep. So, you know, I wanna kind of bring a little bit more sharper into focus around the ideology and this premise of punishment that you were talking about. So how does systemic violence factor into what we're seeing for incarcerated people within the COVID pandemic? Um, and, you know, what what is the difference between this kind of systemic violence or systemic racism, as some folks are calling it? Like, what, what does that look like? How does that factor in? Yeah, I mean, to my mind, the whole thing is systemic violence. Uh, the whole thing is racism, right? And I'm very partial to the definition of racism that the geographer and prison abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore has developed, where she defines racism as the um, the state the state sanctioned. Um, uh, I used to have it memorized, for, <laughs> and now, now I'm sleep surprised. And um, the, the the state sanctioned um, exposure of, of, of vulnerability to premature death, right? Um, so so the ways that the uh, sorry of, of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death, like mm -hmm. the group differentiation is the key key piece of it, right? So what are the ways that that the state is deciding that certain groups of people are allowed to be uh, saved and other groups of people are allowed to be sacrificed, right? And that I think is the core of what racism is, and that is is fundamentally a violent process. Uh, and so I so so think about you know what what prison systems have done to implement social distancing because they can't they can't do that physically. The main thing that they've done is expand the use of solitary confinement. 
right? So the, the, the very mechanism that is designed as a form of punishment within punishment then becomes the only means to, to offer any kind of physical distance when that becomes necessary from a biomedical perspective. And I have been devastated in the last 16 years to, to just try to inhabit and imagine what you know, friends and loved ones who are incarcerated are going through and what the broader, the broader sort of prison population has been experiencing, right? Because as the, as the severity of the pandemic became clear, prisons canceled visits and canceled other kinds of programming, education, and so on. And I think that that was necessary, you know, at the time. Um, so, but, so what that means, though, is that the, the little lifelines and kind of physical contact that incarcerated people had with non-staff, uh, you know, with, with loved ones, with, with, um, with other people who, who, you know, know them, come to care about them, um, was, was cut off. They were for months, as 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 we already discussed, you know, denied PPE, right? There no, there was no vaccine at that point, and so on, right? So just totally abandoned, and then, um, and then even when the you know we talked about the sort of slowness of the vaccine, you know, the uncertainty of the vaccine eligibility for incarcerated people, right? So the the only thing the prison system had to offer people was isolation, right? And you know some of the the companies who um, who offer you know email services or or video visits you know offered a couple of extra emails a month or a couple of extra video visits a month, right? Um, but this is the you know all of that uh, much of that was at the prisoners' expense, um, and and still right pe- people have been very slow. Pr- prison systems have been slow to. To welcome visits, right? To to bring back programming. I'm, you know, in Washington, uh, there's no no programming has returned. I know in New York, visits have returned, but I don't think programming has returned. But even as visits have returned, the Department of Corrections in New York still doesn't allow incarcerated people to hug their loved ones who come to visit. So just all, every, every, at every level, we're seeing the denial of humanity, right? At every level, we're seeing this kind of institutional violence, right? From the very same system that abandoned people to the pandemic to begin with, right? And to see as, as the conversation with the vaccine, you know, began a few months ago to see this idea of, you know, oh, people are reluctant to take it or do people want it and, right? And, and in ways that I think did, um, did, did cause in some, in some quarters some kind of engagement with the histories of medical racism. Um, you know, what, why would, uh, you know, would, would black communities be reluctant to, to take the vaccine and so on? Um, but I, you know, I think that conversation is, is again, you know, magnified tenfold in prison because people have just been through a year of being abandoned by the state to, to the pandemic. Um, and here I, w- I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that incarcerated and detained people revolted against this, right? We had dozens of, of protests, uh, many of them small, but some of them quite large, including one here in Washington, against the, the abandonment, right? So in, in March and April and May, before the kind of mass uprisings that we had in the streets against police violence, there were dozens of protests that, and, and all the way up to uprisings in jails, prisons, and detention centers against the the um, the disposability, right? Against the the callous treatment uh, that incarcerated people faced, and so I also want to want to hold on to that that fact that incarcerated people, as you were saying, you know, there are all these ways that the system works to separate people. But but they are also you know forming forming communities. They exist in communities both within these these institutions, but also between institutions and the communities where they live and the other kinds of um, sort of fictive kinship networks that they are part of. And I think there's been some very powerful forms of of protest and mobilization um, that and you know and and by mobilization I mean lawsuits. I mean uh, all different kinds of things. That that have have centrally 
pursued this idea that prison system is incompatible with public health. And so if the prison system is fundamentally incompatible with public health, what do we need to do, right? And, and I think that's where incarcerated people and their loved ones and advocates and allies on the outside have been very um, adamant in pursuing a, a public health agenda that, um, that a group of scholars has recently summarized as vaccination plus decarceration, right? So yes, everyone in prison should, should be given the vaccine and should be let out. Right, people need to be given the shot on the way out the door, right? <laughs> and that those things can be, you know, sort of seam seamless processes. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, the both and right because I think that a lot of times, especially in, in, and we we can talk a little bit more about this when we kind of think about some strategies and solutions. But um, you know, what you're bringing up for me is the way that many people kind of silo the responses or approaches, right? So it's. Um, yeah, well, get them access to vaccines and then kind of full stop, right? But what does it look like to connect, okay, getting them vaccines and also getting them out, you know, also, you know, uh, narrowing the front door so they never get in in the first place, right? So I really appreciate how you're bringing, you know, that kind of both and up and at the same time, how you're really centering um, incarceration along this continuum of violence, right? Because I think a lot of times, again, we silo um, incarceration, we silo policing, we silo, you know, things all over the place and not understand how really embedded and connected they are. And so with that, because you just started bringing up um, the protests that incarcerated folks were engaging in. And I, and I love that as well, because as we talk about the harm that is being done, um, both for incarcerated people and their families, we do need to talk about these concepts in disaster worlds we would call as resilience, right? Or, or protest, right? Folks actually engaging in um, direct action against the harm. And so really lifting and amplifying that up, right? They have agency and, and, and ability to resist. Um, linking the protest that you were talking about to what we've seen. So now we're a year later, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, we're a year later, calls for racial justice are all over the place. Folks are saying, we need to do something, let's defund, let's decarcerate. What do you think has been the impact of those protests and thinking them, thinking about them in the context of what you were talking about for folks incarcerated protesting as well? Yeah, so I, you know, I think we really need to see them as interrelated and a, and a big part of my um, scholarly work over many years now has been trying to show the the linkage between, you know, movement upsurge uh, on the inside and, and and on the outside that these are not separate phenomena, right? So that when we see an uptick in in struggle in the streets, we see it in prison, and 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 vice versa, right? And I, I think that's you know I, I've written a lot about in the '60s and '70s the ways that incarcerated people, particularly um, black and, and Latinx were inspired by those black power and, and related movements on the outside and that that sort of shaped the development of a kind of prison politic. Um, I think it, it, it's revealing that in the last 10 years we've seen a series of hunger and labor strikes inside of jails, prisons, and detention centers around the country that have been very profound, very political. Um, and, and there's a wonderful timeline that I would direct people to that is run by uh, a project called Perilous Chronicle that, that um, catalogs all of these. Um, and so I, I think there's a way that, um, that incarcerated people, you know, were, were ahead of the curve. And, and I think that, that, the, um, that the protests that we saw last summer obviously were a response to the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Amin Aubrey and too many others. I also think they took their cue in some way, right, from, from what was happening inside a prison. Now, obviously, far more people protested uh, in the streets, the vast majority of whom had no idea what was happening in prison. But I think there, there's a kind of political tone that was set by incarcerated people in, early in the pandemic that I think um, illustrated the need for, you know, a kind of momentous direct action against what we're facing. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the, the protests that we saw last summer were so profound precisely, uh, you know, because they were, they were responding both to a particularly 
brutal form of of brutal series of murders, but in ways that that I think at least the kind of leading edges of those movements really understood and framed as as a rejection of you know the white nationalism of the Trump administration and a rejection of the failures of of you know police reform as existed under the Obama administration, right? That, that this was a, a more uh, a, a bigger and broader rejection of both the sort of the the active violence from from the far right as existed in the White House and in so many local police departments, but also the kind of failed attempts at reform that exist kind of in, in the Beltway from sort of serious people and so on that that failed to prevent any of those murders from taking place, right? And so I think that you had such tremendous, you know, the size, the scope, the sort of moral clarity of, of those protests is phenomenal. Um, and, and I think we know it's phenomenal because we saw how earth shattering it was last June, right? When you saw all of these institutions start to, to reconsider everything right <laughs> right and 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 i think we should be very clear that for the most part this was a very reluctant reconsideration um and and an unwilling reconsideration but i think people you know a lot of these institutions were genuinely terrified that that they were going to to lose something very profound right um and so right i think it's a, it, it speaks volumes to to what those kinds of um, transformative movement moments can do at the same time, I think you know, you know, looking back to the you know to, to that extent, you know, a year later, but but sort of understanding that power from where we are today, I think we have to really recognize that all of those institutions who were reluctantly, you know, reconsidering everything about themselves—I <laughs> mean, not everything, but re reconsidering some aspects of who they were and what they were about—have really tried to 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 regain and reassert dominance. Right. And so I, I think in the moments when, you know, police stations are being set on fire and you have millions of people in the street, everyone's starting to say, like, wow, <laughs> like, wow. What, what, what should we do differently? Right. And as that recedes and, and you know, it, I mean, it receded for for um, for various reasons. But I think we, we can't overlook the, the impact of police themselves in, in, in trying to enforcing those movements to recede as, as always happens um i think we have to have to pay attention to the fact that that now right um all, all of these systems are trying to reassert control so just to give to give some 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 concrete examples of that early in the pandemic we saw a slowdown in jail admissions right particularly but much more than we saw decarceration from prison, right? Much more than we saw people getting out of prison, although we did see some of that, we saw people not, not being sent to jail, right? And I think this was a, a, a recognition that people didn't need to go to jail, that people didn't belong in jail, that jail was not useful or necessary, and, that, and it took a situation in which jail was actively and knowingly harmful in order to kind of spread this consciousness that like, oh, maybe we don't need this, right? Just like we can see like, oh, poli like, police, we don't need, police shouldn't be doing traffic enforcement. And look at all the violence that happens from police doing traffic enforcement, right? Um, so, so we saw a reduction in jail, jail emissions. We saw some modest decarceration of people in prison and this, as with jails, the decarceration of prisons varied tremendously based on the jurisdiction that we're talking about. Um, I can talk about Washington. I, you know, since I live here, and it's like sort of context I'm most familiar with, um, where the governor released um, 900 people, I believe, and it was so fascinating slash infuriating um, because the the declaration announcing their release said. Whereas prison systems can't promote social distancing, whereas prison systems, uh, you know, are facing this deadly uh, virus that that you know poses all these risks, um, whereas elderly people and people with underlying medical conditions face the the greatest risk of um, 
contracting and, and, and dying from this illness. Therefore, we're going to release people who are within a couple months of their release date. Right? So even the, the, even the recognition of who deserved consideration for de decarceration was decoupled from who actually was, was, uh, was given relief. I'm grateful for the, that people got out. I'm so happy for them and for their families. But there's a real profound disconnect to, to deal with the fact that we have been locking up people for longer and longer periods of time so that that you know, fundamental element of mass incarceration is that we have people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who are still in prison for things that, that they may have done in their teens or 20s. And so, so right, we see this reluctance to release the people who, who most warrant it epidemiologically. And now we're seeing, you know, in Washington, the, the Department of Corrections is, is taking advantage of the fact that there are fewer people in prison to say that, that they should expand electronic home monitoring and they should ex expand uh, house arrest and, and, that, and that the DOC should be principally involved in, in navigating these so-called alternatives to incarceration, which are really, as Maya Shenmore and Victoria Law describe in their excellent book, a prison by any, uh, any other name. And so, that, so that's what I mean about all these systems reasserting control that they, they held on as long as they could, right? Like we're not gonna release elderly and aging people by and large, and then we're, and then we're going to, to, to expand control and, and call, that, um, call that an adaptation or call that, call that whatever, whatever you will, right? But I think yeah. that, that's the real threat that, that I think we face in this moment. Yeah. And just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 Eastern Standard Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. East uh, Korean time, excuse me, on YouTube. Just go to COVID calls on the YouTube channel to watch, or you can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you can get podcasts. Keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. And you can keep up with me at underscore grace, the number for this. And we are here today with Dr. Dan Berger, Associate Professor of Comparative Ethnic Studies at the University of Washington, Bothell. And we've been really having a rich discussion on incarceration, structural violence in the pandemic, what we're seeing going on. And so I, I want to pick up on, you know, a couple of things that you're talking about, because even in my kind of research as in my PhD program have been doing research on um, the intersection between disasters and criminal justice and incarceration um, and understanding what we're what what I'm finding in the interviews that I'm having with folks who are working with people who are on community supervision they're finding exactly what it is that you're talking about, right? They're understanding the burden of conditions, of supervision conditions, and they're understanding, wait a minute, people can't even meet their basic needs, let alone be able to meet all of these obligations, right? But still understanding that punitive backing to that. So if you are homeless, or if you um, don't have food and you don't have these kind of basic necessities, it's okay, it doesn't really matter. Make sure that you meet with your probation officer or your parole officer, right? Or having folks talking about um, folks staying in jail or staying in prison because they are not letting them out or you know, court shutting down or whatever have you. So really when we're talking about incarceration and I'm appreciating that it keeps coming up you know, throughout your responses, we're not talking about one thing. We're not talking about one system. We're talking about, you know, when we think about it squarely in disasters, when we talk about social vulnerability, we're not just talking about, you know, folks who are inherently socially vulnerable by some characteristic of themselves, but really thinking about structures that render those identities vulnerable, right? So what does it mean to be a person of color, someone black or indigenous or another person of color in the United States in this social context that then renders you vulnerable? Or what does it mean to be, you know, a gender, a, a person who's like gendered minoritized in this country, right? That 
is what necessarily, um, you know, brings about that social vulnerability. And I think that's really apparent through your responses that it's not as simple or black and white as, okay, well, you did the crime, so do the time. And if COVID comes into your institution, like it's your fault, right? But really linking how the ideologies under what we understand about incarceration really um, lead to these kinds of things. And so kind of going back to the, the very real experience of folks who are incarcerated right now, if you're in any direct contact or, you know, by proxy of, of contact with folks who are incarcerated or detained at this time, what have they been sharing about their experiences? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, a, a lot of what, what, what I've been saying is definitely owes to the insight of, of um, friends and, and loved ones who incarcerated who I am in touch with um, in different parts of the country. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to repeat myself more, more than I have, but I, but I think the thing that really stands out to me, one of the things that stands out to me from those conversations is how arbitrary and capricious it is, right? Um, and I think there's this idea that, uh, you know, that, that prison itself is the punishment. So, right, that this is sort of the, the foundational idea of prison, right, that being sent to prison is the punishment. But the problem is, if you create this institution that says, well, this, this place is for punishment, so the people here are deserving of punishment, what happens is that prison itself doesn't, isn't the only punishment, right, and that people are punished further and further within that institution. And I think that that's what's really stuck out to me. Right, that yeah. you know this and this idea that oh, if you if you um, uh, you know don't don't do the crime if you don't do the time is like yeah don't cash a bad check if you don't want to die alone in a solitary cell from a from a pandemic that that was preventable right like do you just see the how how mismatched our whole you know the whole way of of conceptualizing and pursuing so-called criminal justice in this country is. Right, um, and and again, this is not in any way new to the pandemic. You know, if you think about, you know, if you think about different moments in history, you could talk about, you know, L. D. Barclay, who was incarcerated at Attica, who who very famously read the statement that incarcerated people there put together um, during the rebellion in September of 1971. Right, very very dynamic, uh, powerful speaker. You know, and, and who was then very, you know, targeted for, for murder by, by state troopers when they retook the prison on September 13th, was incarcerated for, for, for check forgery, right? George Jackson was killed, you know, a month before Attica, weeks before Attica, who was incarcerated for, you know, a $7 robbery of a gas station. Right? You just have all of these people who, who have been, you know, and th those cases are very, um, spectacular, right? Very dramatic. Um, you have, you know, Sharice Shoemate in California who fought for uh, for healthcare for, for other incarcerated women who, who died in, in prison, right? Uh, from from how um, pitiful the prison healthcare system is, right? And the the fact that it's that it's a, a pandemic that is exposing all of these things, you know, to a larger audience in, in the last year and a half. Um, you know, should should not really come as a surprise if you know anything about prisons, right? <laughs> not only for the physical infrastructure issues that we've been talking about, but for how just disturbing or to the point of almost non-existent the healthcare system is in prison, right? So that people, you know, getting Tylenol for for surgeries, right? <laughs> right? Um, people with, you know stage four cancer being given being given some Tylenol and so on. Um, uh, and, and, and all of this is is life and death, right? I mean, again, here in Washington, people, there are several people who died from medical neglect because the chief medical officer was prescribing Tylenol for the cancer patients. Um, so, so I think right, the things that I'm hearing from people all, all fit within just this idea that, that people are just you know, continually, continually subject to punishment, often of, a, of an arbitrary and capricious nature. Um, the other thing that I'd say, which is not directly related to COVID, although like everything is certainly exacerbated by it, is the, is the scale of censorship, right? And, and censorship in prison is 
uh, is again foundational to the institution because you are separating people and so you're putting other people in charge of deciding who and what they have access to. But this is um, but this has also increased, you know, at least for for some more politically active um, people inside. Uh, and you know, some of it's very uh, well, all, all of it's arbitrary, right? But it, it depends on who's in the mailroom that day and what they are deciding. That, you know, does and does not. Um, fit uh whatever kind of rubric they 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 might have um so you know uh, very uh, excited to see the abolitionist organizer and educator miriam kaba's book which has become a new york times bestseller um you know uh, that's been wonderful to see but it was recently denied at a prison here in washington um right so uh, the, the the attacks on on uh, on the knowledge that's circulating inside a prison, I think, is very profound, and I think this dovetails with a with another element of of what the denial of programming means, right? Because there people don't have the access to um, to the kinds of um, you know. Uh, study groups or sort of collective things that that exist when people are able to congregate more. Um, it's also placed a heavier burden on, uh, or the, or I should say, the the prison systems have tried to restrict people's access to books. Right. So what that means is that people need to get books through through tablets, and so that then gives the private companies that own these tablets control over what books do and do and don't come in. And people have to pay for the tablets and and pay for the books as well, right? So you have books that are in the public domain that that private companies are charging incarcerated people who make pennies an hour to to be able to purchase, right? So so I think we have these layers of censorship and control that are that are being. Um, accelerated in this moment, right, that are not directly related to the pandemic, but are still, you know, ne never let a good crisis go to waste, right, <laughs> right, that, that you have these systems that are, are making some pretty, pretty fundamental changes um, in, in that context of, of kind of crisis and disorganization. Yeah. And and for all of the listeners now, I know that we're talking really very specifically about incarceration, but I think there are so many points that we can really draw out and apply to other systems that I think is really important, right? So when you're talking about folks who are getting Tylenol for stage four cancer, right, we can immediately think about the neglect and disproportionate nature of healthcare in the United States, right? And who um, for marginalized or mi minoritized communities, how that impacts them. And right, we can see that within the COVID-19 pandemic, when we're doing hotspots of outbreaks, when we're doing hotspots of um, deaths, when we're thinking about particular communities and groups of people who are experiencing um, deaths from COVID-19 more disproportionately, we can see that these systems, larger systems, are in fact responsible for for you know what we're seeing on the ground. So, just want to plug that for folks that are thinking and are like, hey, well, this is great. This is about incarceration, not really my you know my field. Really start to draw out some of those broader and larger um, implications for what social systems yeah. in the United States are doing. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about your work in particular, and I know that you peppered it throughout, really, um, but particularly around the Washington Prison History Project. And you just brought up Attica, so we're gonna you know this is the 50th year kind of anniversary of the uprisings. Kind of thinking about the, what that means in terms of your work with Black prison organizing. Can you just talk a little bit about that? What does that mean in the context of COVID-19? How can we use that as a tool to really amplify voices that are directly impacted? Yeah, thanks. The, um, the Washington Prison History Project, uh, which I encourage uh, folks listening and watching to, to check out at waprisonhistory.org, um, began several years ago with a, initially with a donation of materials from, um, from Ed Mead, who is a longtime uh, anti-prison activist. Um, here in Washington, who was a part of something called the George Jackson Brigade in the 1970s, which was a revolutionary organization, uh, sort of uh, anti-prison organization that um, that did a series of um, of you know, uh, armed actions, you know, mostly sort of bombings of government buildings, which um, you know, so separate conversation, but certainly was uh, happening in in other parts of the country around that time. Um, Ed was arrested and. Um, uh, during during a, a bank robbery and spent about tw uh, almost twenty years in prison. 
while he was in prison, he became, uh, you know, or continued to be uh, as, uh, an organizer and, and a sort of thorn in the side of the administration. And so he had these kind of three big trunks of materials that that he um, donated to the to the university to to be archived and to be made available. Um, and I was have been working with librarians, uh, guided by a strong open access mission, right? That everything that we have could be digitized and made freely available for for public use. Um, because it it was very clear from the outset that that this collection of uh, wasn't just about Ed Mead's own own case, but was a, a collective history of Washington prisons through, um, through, through the time period of mass incarceration so that we could understand what it meant to, to get mass incarceration from the perspective of incarcerated people themselves, right? There's lots of, of newsletters and other kind of print culture that, um, uh, that, that had incarcerated people writing about, you know, the abolition of parole in Washington, right? And um, which created some of the, the, um, the sort of bottlenecks that I mentioned earlier, right? People just being in prison for longer, right? The, the, the crime is not, is, is not any arson is not worse in 2012 than it was in in 1972 right but you might spend a lot more time in prison for it um etc cetera, etc cetera, right um because you have fewer options of, of release i mean etc etc like fill in the crime here right fill in the offense it's not worse in this time period than another but but the time you spend in prison uh is and so the idea of washington prison history project is that we could provide a a, a sort of local uh indigenous accounting of mass incarceration from the people who who lived it most in, severely okay? um, because washington is such a a overwhelmingly white state you know the the prison population is is much wider than it is in, in many other parts of the country although it is no no surprise, it is heavily disproportionately Black and, and Indigenous, um, as well as Latinx, and, um, and, and, a, and a, in recent decades, a large Asian uh, population as well. Um, so it's also been an interesting, an interesting state to do some of that history, to think through some of that history in, right? Because um, the demographics of incarceration, the, the disparities are what you would expect, but the sort of whole number demographics are are a little bit different than than some other places. I'm, I'm used to studying California. I lived in Pennsylvania. Like the yeah. um, demographics are different in those places, right? Um, but the goal of the project is that it could be a sort of public accounting of what incarcerated people think about and have have experienced and, and organized against mass incarceration over this time period. So we have a collection of archival materials, um, but but when um, we even have a, a, a video game, um, a sort of text adventure game that, that Ed Mead designed in prison called The Warden Game uh, that I encourage people to, to check out. Um, but when, you know, when things really started to shut down, I realized, you know, how, how how much that would accelerate the isolation of incarceration. And so we also created pages for um, writings of people about the pandemic, which, and, and, then, uh, and then about Black Lives Matter as well and about the protests last summer. Um, and you'll find several uh, writings in both of those domains up on the site as well. But I also would just add that several of the people incarcerated here in Washington have been writing for a bunch of other places uh, alongside, right? So you'll you can find writings from people like Christopher Blackwell and um, I'm forgetting Tomas's last name, but um, but but other people in the Marshall Project, in Huffington Post, in um, in the Crime Report, and elsewhere. Yeah, thank you for that. And so. As we're kind of nearing the end of you know what has been an amazing discussion, and I really so appreciate your time because I think that we've covered a lot of ground and have really kind of honed in on some of the kind of larger issues that we really should be thinking about and talking about, even though it might be a little bit more nuanced than folks are 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 used to. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, so stepping back, we've kind of really talked about kind of the undergirding or ideologies around our system of of kind of carceral control, um, what have you, in the United States when we're thinking about kind of what continues to have the machine going, 
understanding what that means for um, impact to incarcerated people just on a regular day-to-day basis and how that might either cause or exacerbate existing issues in the time of COVID-19 and talking about the resilience and protests of folks who are incarcerated and really linking that to what we're seeing on a more national and international level and in terms of of protests and and uprisings that we're seeing. What can we do moving forward, right? So one, how do we really mitigate the spread of COVID-19 in prisons and jails and detention centers? What are some of the policy recommendations, some of the solutions, like as we're kind of strategizing and then following up with that, like what is your hope for this year? So, you know, vaccines and vaccinations are really, um, you know, expanding and folks are getting access to that, but what's, what's your hope? What are, what are you looking forward and looking to? Yeah. Um, thank, thanks for that. Um, the hope, the hope question is is a harder one. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a yeah. lot, there's a lot of very um, despairing things right now, um, and I'm really, you know, reminded of of Miriam um, Kaba's uh, aphorism that hope is a discipline. Right. It's something that we need to we need to practice. We need we need to sort of emphasize. Um, and and indeed, there is a lot to be hopeful for. Right. But I think I think the the challenge that I'm facing um, or that I feel like I'm working through is that I actually feel like the the answers of like what needs to happen are relatively straightforward and for the for the most part pretty achievable like pretty easily achievable in in terms of like the capacity um, but but what's despairing is that the the kind of political will and infrastructure to to implement them, is is lacking and, and of course you know facing um whatever sort of will there is is facing all sorts of onslaughts from you know from us anti-democratic small d anti-democratic um you know authoritarian racist and, and misogynist uh, movement um that is is embodied in the gop but is bigger than the gop um so uh i think so, but but I think that the immediate answers are are relatively straightforward. We need to get as many people out of prison as quickly as possible. Uh, we need to be closing jails and prisons and detention centers as as quickly as possible. Uh, and all of that needs to be needs to be done in in a again a kind of small d democratic way, right? Because I think one of the things that that carceral systems do is destroy community capacity, right? And, and we can, you know, I've done a lot of work on this. Other people have done a lot of work on the ways that mass incarceration was a kind of targeted assault on the Black liberation movement in particular, right? So to sort of weaken the ability of what the movement that posed the, the strongest challenge to U.S. authority and, and capital in the 60s and 70s. Um, right, and, and that was accomplished through the jailings and arrests of of key leaders, absolutely, but most essentially of of the foot soldiers, right, of the of the of the grassroots, right, both the people who were already activists, but but as profoundly the people who would be the activists, right, the sort of natural base of the movement was who was was expressly targeted by. The war on drugs, by the war on gangs, by all of these kind of domestic warfares that were used to to build up the prison regime, largely on the backs of black and brown men in in the prime of their lives, right? But black and brown boys and men in the prime of their lives, um, in terms of whole numbers, but also black and brown women uh, as well, and so, right? So, so I think that that's kind of the the origins of mass incarceration, which is why the point is not. To, to, to let the Department of Corrections decide it's gonna close a unit here or a prison there and move into electronic home monitoring, like that, that's not gonna cut it, right? Well, and, and this is why I think the demand to defund the police was such a profound leap forward, right? A, a way, a light years above the demands of reform the police or, 
or even community control, although I think that demand is, is, is a righteous one, but I think it, it fizzles out into this idea of community policing and into these things that are, are already sort of made to be sort of co-opting co uh, moves. But I think what, what, what the uh, movement that sort of crescendo last year was so crystal clear on is no, there's too many police with too much power and authority in the lives of working class people and particularly in black uh, communities and other communities of color. And so we need less of that. We need less police, right? We need police doing less things. We need police to not have, uh, to have less weapons. We need police to have less authority. The, the same for prisons, right? There are too many people who, who are encountering the, the criminal justice system at all, and that is wholly unnecessary, right? Now, I, I, I'm an abolitionist, so I'm saying we need to abolish the whole, the whole thing, right? Um, but even without getting to, to the kind of abolition and the kind of alternative world making that abolition promises and holds forth, I think there's a clear, immediate public health need to say that police and prisons are a threat to, to the public health of society. And so we need uh, to, to eradicate uh, as much of them as we can, as fast as we can. And I think what the pandemic showed is that actually we, we can do that. There were large scale releases of people from jail and some you know, cumulatively large scale releases of prison if we look at the whole country. Um, and the sky didn't fall down, right? And, and that was without the kind of large scale redistribution and the large scale infrastructure building that we need to do, right? That, that those systems precisely prevent from happening. So that if we are saying, uh, you know, that, 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 that the call to defund the police has always been a call to strengthen uh, to strengthen schools, to strengthen unions, to, to be you know, connected to the Green New Deal, right? And, and I think the kinds of, um, th those kinds of proposals about a Green New Deal, about a, um, about a, a full employment um, bill, about public uh, universal healthcare, right? All of these kinds of, uh, all of these kinds of structures, right? Are, are abolitionist, right? Or at least, should, should be understood as such, right? Should be paired with closing as many institutions as possible, right? Turning those, turning those institutions and those funds over to the community to decide what to do with, right? I think we have a lot of, of wonderful um, museums that can rec record this horrific experiment in human sacrifice called mass incarceration that we can build out of those institutions, right? We have a lot of, of gardens and, uh, and schools and, and wonderful things that, that can flourish when we, when we don't have the, the jackboots of the largest military apparatus masquerading as a police force and the largest prison system um, preventing us from doing so. Right, yeah. and so I think all, all of that gives me hope, um, or at least the potential of that gives me hope, uh, because I think I think it's so clear, right? And I think the last year and a half has really has really shown the failures of the way things are, um, but also the possibilities of the way things could be. And um, the last thing I'd say on that point is that I think you know the COVID has been a, a, a tremendous. Uh, urgent call for internationalism, that it's not enough for us to understand ourselves as, as these kind of siloed units, as you were saying earlier, but also that we can't understand ourselves um, as, as a siloed nation. And when we look at you know, this talk of some in the US that treats the pandemic in the past tense, when we've had way more COVID deaths in 2021 than happened in 2020, and the the kind of hoarding of, of the of the um, vaccine, um, and as well as just relegating the vaccine to to a private uh, as a to a private resource, right? So even though all all this public money went into fund it, is just unconscionable. Um, and so I hope that. You know, alongside those those sorts of of, um, of alternatives and demands that I was sort of laying out, that that we begin or, or or accelerate our understanding of these problems and and of these solutions as being part of one one system, right? One world, um, and and with that sort of recognition, ultimately that that we are that that we that we are all we have, right? And that we owe something to each other in that regard.
Yeah, I think that's an amazing way to end. We are all that we have and we owe something to one another. And I think that that's a really critical point and something that I'm hoping that folks can take away from this conversation and just really understand the interconnected nature, not of just the systems that we've been talking about, but really each other. So just one more time, I want to remind everyone, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. on YouTube. Just go to COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch and you can hear it anytime recorded on podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And then you can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or COVID Calls. And you can keep up with me at underscore Grace, the number for this and Dr. Berger at DNBRGR um, also on Twitter. So definitely spread the word, send suggestions for guests and future topics. Dr. Berger, I cannot thank you enough for your time, for your wisdom, um, for just this really rich discussion. And I'm really hoping that folks can take it away and draw on it and really apply it to many, many other contexts, fields, populations, and really, you know, think about how interconnected we are. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a great night. Mm -hmm.